Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Assembly Line. I'm Kevin from Khan Games. I'm Bo from Soul Goose Productions, and we're here for another episode to talk about NES homebrews. Uh, we took a couple weeks off because of some technical difficulties, and also because the game that we're going to be talking about today, uh, Star Keeper, I actually did not own, so I had to get someone to mail me a copy. And I love Corey to death, but he mailed it the slowest way humanly possible. But we're here now to talk about it. Yeah, um, before we get to Starkeeper, though, um, we've had some write-ins and stuff, uh, some more, and about programming and what it takes to make games. And one of the ones that we wanted to talk about this week was uh, the limitations of the NES. So uh, what what are some of the the limitations of the NES? Uh, Well, I think right away uh, the number of colors you can use comes to mind. Yeah, there's, what, uh, 54 unique colors? 52, Something 54? like that. And uh, some of them are more unique than others, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, there's like three shades of the same gray. Yeah. I think NES, is, uh, NES has some really good blues and greens. But other than that, it's like it's kind of just like uh, whatever. Yeah, blues are a big one. That's why they made Mega Man blue was because there was actually enough blues to make him look really well. Really? Screen. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the one of the reasons for their choice. Um, Let's just end the episode right there, because that's okay. a good knowledge drop. Oh, well, you know, I don't I think tried. we can top that. Um, but yeah, the NES, I mean, that's one of the things you notice about any kind of, I hate the word retro, but retro system, old system, is the, the it's really defined by the colors and things like uh, the number of pixels on the screen, resolution. Another limitation of the NES, which... Every, you know, it's one of those things that everybody sort of points to as, oh yeah, I remember the NES, is uh, attribute glitches. Uh, around the edges of the screen when you're scrolling, you may or may not see, depending on which type of TV you're using and depending on which direction you're going, kind of some over, not overscan, but some different colors for what should be there. So you'll see like a water tile with that's like green, like the grass, and that's because the NES normally could only hold so much memory, enough uh, attribute uh, color data for one screen worth at a time. And so that's one of the limitations that we can sort of get around, but uh, for most games did not because it was cheaper. Right, and like you said, that's mostly seen in games that scroll, and especially if it has like four-way scrolling, like a lot of RPGs, uh, that's pretty bad about that. Yeah, or uh, even Super Mario 3 when you're like flying diagonal. Diagonals always almost do it. Um, Mm -hmm. You'll see it then. Yep, another uh, limitation is, I guess, the number of sprites you can have per horizontal scan line. Okay, and what's that mean? Uh, well, if, uh, say, you're playing Mario 3 and you are on the ground and there are four other enemies on the ground and a fifth one comes on screen, uh, that is too much for the NES to handle because, well, each of those enemies is made by two horizontal columns of sprites so that makes you know nine or ten sprites and uh stuff starts flickering yeah so the nes can only do eight sprites on one horizontal scan line and that's you know each individual line of pixels and any more than that they'll either start to disappear or the programmer can program in things like flickering uh which you know, may look horrible but it's one way of having more things on the screen than would normally be able to be there i actually had no idea that it, I just always assumed that the flickering happened automatically. When I, when I f- 
learned that I had to program that in, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was one of the tricks that they, they had to do that on the Atari as well, the 2600 uh, Pac-Man. And it worked really well with Pac-Man because, you know, they're ghosts chasing you. But, ah. uh, you know, when you're playing dodgeball or super dodgeball, you know, they're right. ghosts. <laughs> Which I actually just played for the first time. That flicker in that game is horrid. Yeah, yeah. that's a fun game, though. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was good. I just uh, did not realize how bad it was. It's crazy what kind of stuff you just sort of overlooked back in the day. Like, I got, when I was a kid playing that game, I never thought about the flickering. It was just what was happening when I was playing. Yeah, uh, flicker and slow down. They're things you don't, especially once you start playing and you're into the action, you hardly even notice that they're there unless they're done in such a way that kills you. Uh, like Grandmaster, a Famicom exclusive game, if you get that ninth sprite, enemies just start disappearing, and they're closer to you than the ones that you can still see, and so they Ooh. end up hitting you, or and yeah. stuff like that. And so it's like you you realize that there's there's an issue there because they did not program flickering in with that one. Lazy bastards. So those are some limitations. Um, another one is let's see the amount of unique graphics you can have at one time. Oh uh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so you if you have like a 3D style game like. Uh, Leisure Suit Larry, you can't get super detailed because there are only so many tiles that you can have on screen and, uh, in memory at a time. Well, so many on screen. So that's 256 for background and 256 for sprites, and you can build some of your background out of sprites if you're real creative. That, I'm not talking the total memory. That's a different issue, uh, which right. you, you've run into more than I have, correct? Yes. Because you end up using CHR ROM, whereas I tend to use CHR RAM. Which... Well, I think the past few games I've always used CHR RAM. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh. I think. <laughs> now, now I'm second-guessing myself. <laughs> I know I know. I use CHR RAM because I can just load everything out of memory and sort of build those 256 uh, sets of tiles every screen or every couple frames I can change things. So that's one way that I work around one of the limitations that is normally there. Er earlier games like Mario and things, you'd find like the bushes and the clouds are made out of the same tiles in order mm -hmm. to conserve space or things Right, they like... just change the color. Yeah, and then things like they would... Uh, Japanese games would have only an English font because that's part of your background tiles is your font. And that was one way of you know, only taking up 26 or uh, 20 or 36, if you include numbers, uh, tiles with font and numbers. Yeah, and you mentioned games that um, you can use, like, background tiles and sprites, like, together to make a background. And uh, Contra comes to mind for a lot of their big bosses. Oh, yeah, um, bosses are a big one. Yeah. Yeah, any, any huge boss in a game, they usually have a lot of it being background tiles, you know, parts that don't move. And then the parts that do move, uh, they'll usually use sprites for that. Mega Man's another uh, key one for doing that. Capcom, really, with almost all their bosses in the Disney games and the Mega Man games, used background tiles for the majority of the boss. Anything that's going to be wider than eight tiles is going to be, in some way, using background tiles. So one way to see that, if you're curious and you're, you're trying to learn how people, other people have done things, is to open up the name table viewer in an emulator and you'll see only the background and not the sprites so when you start up Darkwing Duck and the commissioner is giving you your orders it'll show his whole body except for like the beak 
and that's mm-hmm. made out of sprites and that's actually the moving part that you you see on screen and another way you can also turn off backgrounds or you can turn off sprites uh, in the emulator most emulators can do that and they have since the late 90s but it's one way of seeing if you're looking for like a sprite zero hit or things like that it'll be hidden somewhere on screen and getting rid of the whole background will allow you to see that yeah and we're probably using some terms that are over some people's heads uh, but that's okay as long as you get the basic idea of what we're talking about it's something to grow into i know when i was when i was learning uh people just spoke and i sort of like sat there and was like what do they mean by that but eventually it all made sense and it, it made those earlier questions kind of make more sense um another thing oh scrolling in general uh, or um things like uh splitting the screen how about that for a limitation oh yeah oh yeah uh and racing games i still don't fully understand how they do that but um yeah if uh if part of the screen scrolls and another part of the screen doesn't scroll uh that is pretty uh that's a tricky uh, thing to do on the nes yeah, and so that's actually what I meant by sprite zero, which I didn't mean to toss that out a minute ago. But you you use a sprite and it splits the screen because there's no, uh, not usually anyways. Later they made hardware advances that allowed you to split the screen with a timer. But yeah. in the early ones, they actually used this hardware-based sprite zero hit. and it Right, allows... and the way it works is when a non-transparent color from the sprite touches a non-transparent color from the background, the system then knows that that point to split the screen yeah so what are some things that you would think people think are limits but are really not Ooh, that's tough well it, it, it's when you start you know talking about limits in a negative way to me anyway it makes me sad because part of the reason i love the nes is because it has the limits and it sort of forces you to think of creative ways to to go around them i tend to think of it like like poetry if you wanted to write a sonnet, you know, you stick with a certain form or a haiku. It's a certain form. If you want to mm-hmm. write something else or if you get frustrated that you can't do something else, then you go do something else. Uh, yeah. But there's, there's an art to be done within that structure. Well, let's start with you. You give me an example of a way to, to sort oh, of get around um, a limitation just so I can see where you're going with this. Uh, so things like memory. A lot of people, the biggest NES, licensed NES game was 512 KB. And I think the biggest Famicom one, the licensed one, would be, that would have been Kirby for the NES. And then I'm pretty sure that the biggest Famicom one was Metal Slater Glory at 1 MB, which, as most of you know, is tiny compared to almost anything. A picture, you know, is 2 to 4, whatever they are these days. <laughs> but uh, for an NES game, that, that's that's huge. Like Metal Slater Glory was all uh, full screen, gra- not full screen, but uh, it was a visual novel. So there were large graphics, not a lot of repeated tiles like most games. Most games like Mario, they repeated tiles in order to conserve on memory. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people kind of cap out the NES at, you know, you can only have so many tiles, but really you can have almost an endless amount of tiles. With the technology we have today, you can have, I've heard anything from 32 to 64 megabytes. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten to the point where we can have full audio albums, you know, on an NES cart. Was that, that... Uh, did that one have 64, the Sergio's I... I yeah, I want to say that was 64 megabytes, yeah. Pretty sure that one was 64. So that would be 128 times the size of Kirby. That You could have, you know, every screen made of 
completely unique tiles. There is no end to the memory. That That's not a limit anymore. Right. And uh, I know that, you know, when we talked about attributes um, back in the lifespan of the systems days, um, they were very restricted to where they had to use the same sort of attribute table for, you know, a two by two tile area. Um, and now we've developed, you know, further down the road where we can actually uh, do a little bit better to where we won't have those attribute glitches that you talked about before, right? Yeah, yeah, Nintendo did um, the MMC5, which was their their sort of super mapper back in the day. That that even had it down to you know eight by eight attributes, uh, which is every oh, tile right. can have its own color. Yeah, yeah, they didn't use it a whole lot. You don't really see it being used, but if you play like I believe Castlevania three and someone like the stained glass, I want to say uses eight by eight attributes. So that's it's one way that has worked around. I mean, even back in the day, they were working around a lot of what people think makes the NES the NES. I've, I've heard anything from like, you know, the NES, well, attributes are just part of it, but it's not really the case. They were mm-hmm. only part of it because they wanted to save money. Right. Um, Another one that comes to mind is uh, the number of colors that you can use per sprite. I know that there's a trick to where you can sort of stack sprites on top of each other using different uh, palettes to where you can, you know, have more than three colors for a sprite. I know yeah. Mega Man did this, right? Yes, Mega Man is the always the prime example. You layer sprites, basically. His face and eyes are not the same uh, sprite as the rest of the helmet. Yeah. And so, but with that, you run into things like then attribute glitches, uh, because you then have, instead of only having two wide, his face is actually three wide because oh, yeah. they're stacked. So you got to sort of watch things like that. There's always trade-offs, it seems. There are, and that's one of the things about just the poetry and structure. If you want to have this word on this line, you got to rhyme it somewhere else down down the way. Yeah. I like that you're using poetry analogies. I actually hate poetry, so <laughs> <laughs> there's always that. Uh, but yeah, there's you know, in terms of. In the 80s, the, the cost of memory was a lot higher. When Memblers made the GT ROM board a couple years ago, he added things in like uh, four independent name tables. That allows you to get around things like the attribute glitches on the edge when you scroll even diagonally. And there were only two games during the life cycle that did that, uh, Gauntlet and then Rad Racer 2, and because it added cost. And so when they were making things like Mario 3, they could have worked around that and, you know, gone for that extra cost. But you multiply that by, you know, millions of copies sold, that's millions of dollars in your pocket. So you just don't. But today, that that same memory, it's actually cheaper to buy the bigger memory than it is to go try and find the smaller one that they don't make anymore. It's funny how that works, but I guess it makes sense when you think of it like that. Yeah, so... They just don't make memory that small. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're talking 8K instead of 32K, or KB. Right. 8KB instead of 32KB, and it's, you know, it's no more expensive to do it that way. So, yeah, those are some of the... A lot of people think that there's limits there when there really aren't. In terms of assets, uh, graphics or sound, there are no limits. Uh, You can make whatever you can create, basically. Yeah, which is a little bit exciting. It's really yeah. exciting, actually. Well, and even in terms of, like, level data, you could have... Uh, I know Glutok, who we talked about in episode one a little bit with Twin Dragons, he had a some sort of map, uh, kind of an overworld engine for, like, a top-down action adventure, and it had, like, tens or hundreds of thousands of screens that it could have on it. You can have all of that, because you can swap out parts of memory and leave other parts, 
So really there aren't any restrictions outside of which board and mapper you want to use. Uh, you can go as big or as small as you like. Uh, some people choose, uh, for artistic reasons, sticking with the poem metaphor, to limit themselves to the very basic no mapper boards, the, the NROM. Uh, mm -hmm. board 256 kb you get you know 256 tiles for graphics or uh, backgrounds and sprites and that's it like and they create beautiful games within that uh, nebs and debs which we talked about last episode is one of those that has chosen to stay within those constraints uh, for artistic reasons i think there is one part of the nes that is that you're limited by that you can't really get around and i want to know if you agree with me or not is this sound by chance? It is not sound. Oh, because I, you know, I don't know much about sound, so. I... Damn it, Bean! <laughs> ah. uh. He has to make an appearance every episode. Well, he must. Uh, he is the mascot dog. Um, <laughs> but like you know, I don't know a lot about sound, so actually we should touch on audio uh, limitations in a sec. But what were, okay. what were you going to say? Um, the V-blank. I mean, there's only a certain amount of time to where you can redraw background tiles every frame, right? Kind of. Uh -oh. um, Teach me something. There is and there isn't. There's ways to work kind of around that. And one of those, I don't really want to delve on it too much because I want to get into it in a different episode. But ah. with things like the AVS uh, by Retro USB, which is a FPGA recreation of the NES, okay. uh, it, it can play both PAL and NTSC through it. And so you could actually build a game specifically for it that used PAL timing and that would increase your V-Blank time. That's creative. I never would have considered that. I have many ways that the AVS works around things, but again, <laughs> a different episode. But then you would be forced to use the AVS to play that game properly, right? Or a PAL console, yeah. Right. Now there are, there, but there are other ways, like with um, my current project, which is not Spooktron, but an RPG, I, when it's a character's turn, it actually loads up, like you choose the action, and it will load up the tiles based on which action you chose. It'll load uh, eight, eight new tiles every frame, and if there's 60 frames per second. So you don't even notice the time that it takes to load uh, 32 new tiles for what your current action is. And hmm. actually it loads 64 because it loads 32 more for your weapon and then the animation that goes with that weapon. That sounds complicated. It, it was at first, uh, but I've got it down now to where I can... What it, what it allowed me to do and the reason why I did that is... It, those I am not limited by 256 tiles. So if a character has, if you have four characters, you have 12 actions per character. You have 100 different weapons and 10 different animations for those weapons. You can have all of that. It just has to load it in across those few frames that the player is hardly going to notice because it's an RPG, and you can have unique tiles as much as you want. That's awesome. I sent it to you uh, a few weeks ago, but it um, the emulator runs too fast. For what I'm doing in the background, so you don't actually notice, even when you have it slowed down to you know one percent timing, uh, all all that's going on. Oh wow! Yes, I'm I'm tricky. What well, that's good. You don't want the the player to know. Oh yeah, and when you're running that like full speed, you really don't notice because you're used to with an RPG, you input a command, you wait you know half a second, then they mm -hmm. execute it. Like you got to close some menus, things like that. But if you're updating all your tiles behind the scenes, you can have whatever uh, in a game. Well, I am excited for you to finish that. Uh, i got to really get started on it first. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that'd be good. Uh, yeah, it's going to take some time, I imagine. So audio, uh, do, you, do you know some audio limitations? Uh, well, I mean, I have never coded my own sound engine, but I know that the NES in general 
uh, is restricted to using typically four or five channels at one time. So you could have two sort of square channels. The the wave looks like a square wave um, for melody and counter melody, and then a triangle wave for the bass line typically. And then you'll have a noise channel for percussion. Um, usually those four channels are what people use, but there is a fifth channel that you can use for, um, for voice samples and stuff like that, but it uses a lot of memory. So people tend to stay away from it, or the- at least I do digital pulse code modulation channel correct yes that is it i can't believe i got that right uh dcpm (laughs) i always mix up the letters and i really don't care because i don't really know what it means but actually the song we'll have at the end of the episode uses the dcpm channel memblers is a big fan of of using it uh, because he uses it very well right he's smart enough to not screw things up (laughs) well ideally but uh no we actually had to do some extra stuff with because you can only bank swap I, th- I think it's you can only bank swap certain parts of dcpm samples and so we had to do some things to get the songs to play right in in the game but uh, what then game? Oh, zero to x which is one okay. that i published uh, a while back that he did i well we'll get to that at the end but um so the famicom actually had an extra it had expansion sound so, so if you, you play zelda on the us nes it sounds different than if you play zelda on the Famicom. Well, it sounds different too if you play on the Famicom disc system because the disc system had a different type of extra sound channel. Mm-hmm. But then some developers like Konami, they built special boards that had expansion audio built into them. And so you'd actually get two more channels, six total channels. Um, and what that allowed was for, in addition to like more complex songs like you see in the Grange Point, you could also have things like the sound effects did not also run on the same sound channels as the music. So they wouldn't cut out. If you play like Final Fantasy 3 on the Famicom and you scroll down through a menu, it will actually cut out the main song as you're doing that to give you that little bing, bing, bing sound effect uh, as you change options. So you're saying Lagrange Point had six audio channels? Yeah, man, the VRC7, it was the only game that used it, had uh, six six audio channels. I honestly did not know that. That's incredible. And we would have had it in the U.S. Okay, so here's the thing with the U.S. NES, is they just didn't build that in, but you can modify your NES to have those extra sound channels. You have to end up soldering in some things, or I don't know, I didn't do it myself yet, and I probably never will because it's my original NES, but you, you can change some things, you have to do some soldering. But uh, Paul from Infinite NES Lives has been showing on Twitter that he, he has built a plug-in adapter that allows you, it bypasses whatever needs to be bypassed for full expansion sound with no soldering. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's like a wizard. Uh, the, the hardware guys, they always baffle me. So you could play like disk system games and have the expansion audio? It does not work for disk system uh, audio. Okay. That is the one thing it doesn't do, but it'll do things like um, the Konami boards. It'll do, was it Sunsoft? With yeah, Gimmick, so if, exactly, Konami. Mr. Gimmick, yeah. And Namco, Namco also had um, some expansion audio. A lot of companies did it in Japan because they could, you know, sort of allow them to do more with the system. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we're just in the U.S. because we didn't ever have the option built into the NES. Nobody took advantage of it. Otherwise, we'd probably have a lot better sound on it. Yeah, and it's incredible going in and, and listening to some of the games that use that expansion audio because, like you said, growing up in the U.S., we never knew that it, there was any other way. Like, it just, the, the sound was the sound. So it, I remember the first time I played Zelda on the disc system, um, I was blown away because I played it so many times in the U.S. I knew it by heart, you know, and then when I put it in the disc system and it sounded completely different, I like it, um, I couldn't wrap my brain around what I was hearing. It just it was so different. And that's probably one of the best examples is to take a game that you've played to death and you know everything. And I mean that from the opening song to every time you swing a sword is different. Yep. Have you played uh, Lagrange Point before? Uh, I played it for about fifteen minutes, and it was way too hard. The battles were way too hard, so I turned it off. Yeah, well, that's a Famicom RPG. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you really got to grind it out. Uh, but the opening song and like the opening like section is just crazy with the music. It sounds almost like a Super Nintendo game. I'm gonna have to turn it back on just so I can uh, hear that again because uh, I'd like to hear what you're talking about. Yeah, well, and now it's one of those things that we could... Nobody's built a board yet that incorporates that, but there's really no reason not to. If we can find some sort of audio mixing circuitry, or that not not we, <laughs> they... Yeah, yeah uh, smarter people. <laughs> yes, much smarter people. Um, they could do it, and especially with, with what Paul has done with the kind of plug-and-play expansion enabler... Uh, you could very easily ask people to just, you know, if you want the full sound, buy that. And you can build a game to take advantage of it and not take advantage of it. I'm curious how you would write the music for it, though, since uh, Famitracker only shows the four or five channels, you know, that oh, does we typically it? use. Yeah. If, oh. if, if someone built that in to uh, where we could use more channels, I wonder how oh, I thought, for I people. Yeah, I don't think so, but I might not oh. know. Well, and what you'd run into is people that wanted to not use a modified NES or not. Do they just want to, you know, just to play a game like they normally play a game? And so what you could do is simple things like not have or just have the expansion audio run across for sound effects. And then it would never cut. You just would never have the two interfere. And if you didn't have any sort of expansion, then they just would interfere. It's an easy way to do it. At least that's what I'll be doing. <laughs> I look forward to that. Well, that's another AVS thing that I'll just go ahead and give away because the AVS can natively play expansion audio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so that is, um, it's some of the limitations. I hear people complain all the time about the limitations of the NES. Uh, gamers, developers, whatever, or people that not they're not necessarily developing games, but they, they think they might want to. And it's like, well, I don't know if I could deal with those limits. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I want to constrain myself those ways. It's an art. Like, it's an art form, and it, express yourself within the, those confines as if it were poetry. Yeah, and there are, I mean, if you wanted to make a game that looks like an NES game, there are way easier ways to do it than programming for the NES. But ah, sounds uh, fun, though. Exactly. I mean, you, you believe that, and I believe that, but, um, you know, it's definitely... Uh, you have to block off some time <laughs> and do it right yeah, if you're going to do it. That is true. So what are we talking about today? 
What game are we talking about? Oh, and so we were going to talk about Starkeeper this week. Yes, we're going to continue talking about games that are so good that they really could have been commercially licensed games back in the day, and Starkeeper is definitely one of them. Yeah, um, just to, to return to something we mentioned in episode one with the what is a homebrew, what is not a homebrew discussion, one category that we didn't talk about too much, at least in this type of context, was... Uh, Chinese pirates, we'll say, uh, and there that is not really an accurate term. The better one is Chinese originals or usually Taiwanese originals. Uh, mm-hmm. Fellow online and I have discussed this at length. Um, <laughs> I always enjoy those conversations because it's true. Like games like the Final Fantasy VII bootleg, which I think is what we mentioned in episode one. Yeah, uh, the Chrono Trigger bootleg. There's a World of Warcraft on the NES. There what? is Diablo Diablo two on the NES. What? Yeah. Um, how, how do I need to go look these up immediately? No, you don't. They are terrible. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Yeah, they're basically unplayable. <laughs> Final Fantasy VII is playable because uh, Luiga hacked it and made it playable. And then other ones like Titanic, that one's actually pretty good. Titanic uh, the movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Titanic is, is pretty decent. And then oh, I'm a, so out of the loop. Yeah, no, there's like, um, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, Waxing, Nanjing, Nanjing uh, whatever they are, because uh, I cannot say Chinese names. Uh, they did like 120 or 150 different unique individual games. Wow. Like, that's a lot of bootleg pirates. And were these um, during the NES's lifespan? No, they were after, and they're not—they're not bootlegs like I made a bootleg of Mario and I'm selling it. You know, I put Mario onto a cartridge that I didn't pay for and I'm selling it. They're not bootlegs like that. They're IP bootlegs, so right. they're using somebody else's intellectual property. But the games themselves are actually original. If you change some names and characters and stuff, you would have a fully original game. Well, and things like Chrono Trigger try to replicate the game itself. So there's that. But uh, mm. the engine and everything is all unique. So so Chrono Trigger is not playable? Is that one of the ones that's not playable? They're not playable for the reason that you don't think LaGrange Point is playable. They're way too hard. <laughs> okay. And they may not really be finished. Um, okay. I don't think anybody's gotten far enough in it to know if it's finished or not. <laughs> They're really, really hard. Um, but so those are those tend to be known as like pirates, and they they came out of China and they were sold in you know the tens or hundreds of thousands like they're not that hard to find uh, even some super nintendo games like final fantasy 4 that was uh done that was done on three cartridges to uh, really you know get some extra money minish cap uh that one might interest you because i know you like that game it's my favorite zelda link to the past that's another one and that one's fun from a development perspective because it you can tell that two different people programmed it. The overworld and the underworld use different gameplay engines. Really? Yeah, like your character doesn't behave the same way. Like the, <laughs> the same buttons don't do the same things when you switch uh, between dungeons and not. Huh. So, and as a when I was first getting into homebrewing, that was one of the things that I noticed. I was like, I bet there were two different people that did that. How else would you explain it? Uh, and you looked it up and that was true? No, it's all in Chinese. I can't tell. Oh. <laughs> Well, that's another thing about all these, uh, the Chinese, I hate using the word pirate, but we're going to use it, um, is that we we don't really know a lot about these games. We know them by their finished product, and that's about it. Um, but there has been one Chinese homebrew, and the way that we're going to, I'm going to distinguish between homebrew and kind of the broader pirate category is that you have a hobbyist 
individual, very limited effort versus something that is, you know, somebody's paying somebody to develop it. They're not, and they're selling, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands. Right. Do you think that's sort of is that sort of fair? Yeah. He 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 didn't. He wasn't hired to make this game. This is something that he made for the love of the system because he wanted to make it. Yeah. And uh, the fellow we mean who made Starkeeper. Um, again, you're going to have to pardon the Chinese butchering here, but it, Zhang Zhao Di. Uh, which his initials are ZXD, and he goes by ZXD Play online, and his sort of uh, company is called 87 Arts. Mm -hmm. Has he made anything else other than Starkeeper? Oh, not yet. He, as soon as Starkeeper was finished, he was already talking about, like, what he was going to do next. Like, he grew up playing the NES slash um, Famicom bootlegs, uh, because the console themselves are bootlegged pretty, pretty heavily in China. And they have some law. They had some laws against modern games as well, which sort of kept them with these older systems for much longer than the rest of us. But uh, yeah, he grew up playing these this system, this platform, if you will. Uh, took uh, two years to develop Starkeeper. Went from 2012 to 2014. He began posting about it in April of 2014 with an intended release date of May, which uh, didn't quite happen. <laughs> He even had to pay a translation company just to be able to post. He posted about his game on some forums, but especially on Nintendo Age, where the game ended up getting released as well. And he, he had to pay somebody else just to be able to get his point across. And he made a, a the very first thing he says is, this is not one of those pirates. This is original. I did this on my own with, with the help of a musician, but I did this on my own, and I don't want these two things to be confused. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, which, it's, it's probably a good thing to, to distinguish because it's easy to sort of write off a lot of those Chinese pirates just because the quality is is typically not there. Yeah, the quality is not always there and and the passion and not the passion in terms of this is me doing this in, you know, my office or basement in my free time versus I'm being paid to do this. Like it's a different type of passion. Yeah, and I think you can get away with a little bit more not that he needs to because this game is amazing, but I know that if if it's someone sort of putting their all into something, I will overlook some some maybe archaic things that they do. Oh, yeah, or or you recognize them to be personal choices right. that they have done it because they want it to be this way, not because they care what you think. Exactly. Sometimes, anyways. <laughs> and so it's sort of weird that this came out of China, but this was not released as a Famicom cartridge. This was released as an NES cart. And one of the reasons for that was that he didn't find a lot of support for the game within China itself, and he didn't even, I don't even know if he tried Japan, um, which the homebrew scene in Japan is almost non-existent, but not quite, but almost. Um, I wonder why that is. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's it's the lack of outlets, if it's the lack of uh, communities. Like We have a pretty like awesome homebrew community in the U.S., Canada, France. Most of the Western world has a pretty good uh, understanding that we are still making games for old systems. Right. Uh, whereas other cultures have kind of moved on to newer things. Uh, in some cases, not in all, by, by any means. There's been some phenomenal Famicom homebrews, but only in like... Three or four. So which uh, which Famicom homebrews we got? Blade Buster. What else came out from Japan? Uh, Mr. Splash. That was okay. the first I know of. Um, which that one has been. Both of those have been reproed a lot. And that's another thing is they were never officially released by the de the developer. They just released a ROM, or they said you can put this on carts, but please don't sell it. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, Eighty Seven Arts, uh, he actually published this game as if it were 
a game like that he wanted to sell a physical release yep and we'll get into the the different types of releases later on but he even did limited editions is that right yeah oh actually well yeah we'll get into that in just a bit but let's uh let's talk about the game itself what type of game is it would you say Ooh, uh arcadey type platformer ish <laughs> i don't know <laughs> what would you describe it as uh, i'll use his words uh, it's like balloon fight if you could shoot things okay <laughs> Which, Balloon Fight, of course, was inspired by Joust, and you sort of, you're flapping, uh, in Joust you flap wings, in Balloon Fight you sort of flap your hands, and in Starkeeper you use your jetpack. Yeah, which, um, it starts out with a dude sort of sitting on a star, uh, a moon comes out, kind of zaps you, takes all your little stars away that you have to collect later on. Yeah, you're just uh, sort of going around in your jetpack trying to collect these stars. Oh man, if you want the actual story... Uh... Have you looked in the manual? Uh, I briefly did, but uh, you'll have to refresh my memory. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he's got, like, everything you just said. Um, but he also talks about... Uh... In the distant horizon, there is a place called Starry Kingdom. <laughs> oh, shoot. I missed that page. All right. Uh, yeah, no. Um, he, he explains certain things like... The sky is always presented as a colorful night with stars and clouds, which is one way of getting around what the NES looks like to begin with. Like, Mm -hmm. you can sort of paint that picture that, okay, everything's dark, you're on that black background, although it's blue in this case. Yep. And... And I did mention that the NES has really good blues and greens, and this game definitely makes full use of them. The graphics are fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um... So you're in Starry Kingdom, you are the Star Keeper, your job is to protect this uh, giant star called Lucky Star, it's it's the mascot of the kingdom. Uh, your name is Dylan. Oh, that's a nice American name. I know, I don't, <laughs> it's kind of a strange <laughs> choice, but alright, uh, your name is Dylan, with a Y? It's spelled strange, that's Keeper. funny. <laughs> is it? I actually don't know how Dylan's spelled, but uh. Well, maybe that is the normal spelling, who knows? Yeah, so uh, the evil blue moon comes out. He kind of fancies Lucky Star, breaks the star into a bunch of fragments in order to decorate his own kingdom with. And so your job, like storyline-wise, this is actually pretty decent for an NES game, Mm -hmm. uh, at least an arcade one, is to recollect the stars that uh, Blue Moon has taken. Yep, so you have to go around collecting them, and then you have to fly back to your house and drop them in the chimney. Which you're... Uh, house is known as Guardian One. Guardian One. Guardian One. Huh. It's like a spaceship. Which name. makes me th- makes me think of a leader one from the GoBots, which was the Transformers <laughs> knockoff. I don't know if anybody else knows that, but leader one. So Guardian One. Uh, yeah, you fly left to right. Yeah, uh, you, you tell us about the gameplay, Kevin. Yeah, so you're hitting the A button to sort of keep your... It's kind of like Flappy Bird. You're trying to keep your sort of levitation going with A button uh, while at the same time uh, killing all of the enemies. And the enemies are pretty cool. You know, they they vary level to level, wave to wave. Uh, At the beginning, there are some angels with harps that kind of throw music notes at you, uh, ducks that poop on you, uh, cyclones falling from the sky... Um, so th- he's really creative with the different enemies and different, you know, the later levels have some really cool things like skeleton pirates in pirate oh, ships man. shooting cannons. They look like they're kind of raising running. the roof when they're going around. Um, but you're doing all this, uh, while maintaining, you know, your, your altitude. There, that's a great word. 
That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> you're not levitating. Uh, yeah, so you're maintaining no. your altitude. Um, and you have to get back to your house, drop the stars. And it, it's. I think it starts out with you having to collect 88 stars. So it's not just a few that you have to collect. You have to kind of collect almost all the ones on the screen, uh, drop them back into the house, and then you'll kind of go on to the later waves. Yeah, it kind of plays... It reminds me of Defender in terms of going from the screen wraps from right to left. Mm -hmm. You can just keep going all the way to the right and you'll eventually get back to your house. And same too with the enemies. You don't have to kill anything. You sort of choose what you want to kill and what's in your way and what you need to get to to be able to... Or what you need to get through to be able to get to your the stars you want. Yeah, and you definitely have to learn the different enemies' behaviors to, to make the best choices on what to kill and what not to kill. Well, they improve too. Like So each world uh, is broken down into two waves. You have wave one and then wave two. Mm-hmm. And the the difficulty ramps up between the waves in almost a bigger way than it does between worlds. They the enemies just become he takes the basic mechanics and then sort of adds to it. They move faster or like the you get uh, tornadoes in wave one that just sort of fall from the top of the screen at you. But in wave two of world one, they zigzag as they go down. And so it presents a new challenge even while sort of keeping the same basic mechanics of that enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same thing in world three. Uh, There are some blimps that explode when you kill them. In the first wave of, of stage three, they just kind of explode into four little fireballs. And in wave two, they explode into a lot more fireballs than just four. So it's, <laughs> it's a lot more to dodge. Yeah, and then also new enemies are introduced, like the second wave of World 2. You get that, that pirate ship, skeleton pirate ship with the cannons, mm-hmm. and that thing is just a pain. <laughs> I do not like that thing. Um, but then once you start World 3, it's almost easier at first because that guy's gone. Yep. And you're not fighting him anymore. You're just dealing like, oh, with okay. helicopters and airplanes and, and normal-looking enemies. And so as far as uh, terrain goes, the first world is uh, nice, grassy ground. Mm-hmm. There's a solid ground, and you have clouds in the air. You can stand on the clouds. You can you know use that as your vantage point to shoot things. And then in World 2, you actually have giant pits with the ocean because mm-hmm. you sort of go to an island scene uh, is it world four that has the pillars and sort of architecture i i recall uh i know th- the third one does the cityscape i think the fourth one does oh, right. yeah have the pillars and stuff like that okay yeah and so as in addition to the enemies changing the background changes music changes um uh in terms of professionalism what do you think kevin oh i mean it's it looks fantastic um the graphics are great even my mom commented on how good it looks and she doesn't really know anything about nes so uh graphics are (laughs) great uh music uh for the most part i think is great there's a couple tunes that i'm not crazy about but i think that could really be said about any nes game um sound effects are great just the gameplay feels good um I thought that some of the collision was a little questionable, but you did not agree with me. Um, I do not agree with But you. I think overall, I mean, it's it's one of the best sort of most put-together homebrews for sure. Yeah, so when you start, uh, it sort of opens with the scene that Kevin mentioned where, like, you actually watch everything happening. It's not done through cutscenes, but, like, the star comes down or the moon comes down, knocks you off your star, 
steals your stars, disappears, you jump into your house, the house rocket ships away, and then you get sort of this like intro thing before the world starts. And the, some of the graphics looks almost like uh, Super Mario World with those rounded hills with the faces on mm-hmm. them. And he does this uh, he does this really cool thing before each stage starts where he it's like a little intro screen where it shows the graphics in this really sort of damn it, what's the word? This really set, yeah, sepia. There you go. The color palette. It's really cool looking. <laughs> Sorry, I was gonna say saturated, but yeah, sepia for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so you can tell you're not actually playing, but yet it's the same world that you're gonna be in. Like when they do flashbacks in movies and it's in black and white, that type of thing. Yeah, really, really cool stylistic choices that that just polish the game that much more. I mean, it's so much work to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, You've added a bunch of stuff like that to your games, and it's always impressive. Never enough, though. I mean, it's there's just so much that more that you could do all the time. I, I remember um, Tim, who we interviewed in last episode, um, I was talking to him last week, and he mentioned that he got Super Russian Roulette in the mail. Um, and in that game, Andy did so much you know, with the animations and stuff. And Tim was just like, I could have done so much more with Tailgate Party. And I'm like, you know, y- you could, but like, you would never release a game if you sat down and continued <laughs> to add thing after thing after thing. So uh, at a certain point, you just have to kind of call it. But uh, in Starkeeper, he did a really good job. We didn't even talk about the weapon upgrades yet. I mean, there's so oh, much yeah. that you can get with the weapon upgrades. They're like kind of like Contra with the spread gun. You can get like a spread gun and you can shoot multiple directions at the same time. Just really, really cool stuff. Oh, I, I like the, it's kind of like a wave pulse cannon. I think he calls it in the manual mm-hmm. that, that thing is awesome. You just, cause you usually get two shots on them. Then you can also upgrade your speed. You get one ups, extra hearts. You actually like, it's not one hit death, which yes. I always like. Thank I God. Because the game is hard enough. Oh, yeah. The game is rather hard. You do get infinite continues, which is nice. Uh, so, But they, they don't save what wave you're on. They only save what stage you're on, correct? Yes. You have to, like, you're always pushing to get to that next stage or world so you can, you know keep your progress and so with all that when you're when you're making a game you sort of have to take a kind of a philosophy towards limitations uh, what is going to be your standard for what is for what you're going to do uh, my own personal one with my games has been if a licensed game can do it so can i i don't care how complex or how big or how whatever like with enough time and patience, which I have a ton of, um, <laughs> eventually I can get to that standard if, if I want to take the time for that. And maybe it's something minute that doesn't matter, but maybe it's something that does, like getting that jumping just perfect and the gravity just perfect. Maybe that's a big deal to me, and so I'm going to take the time on it. And What about you, And it's, it's not just you. I mean, taking the time to get something right does make a huge difference. And you mentioned, um, you know, jumping mechanics and gravity and stuff like that. There have been numerous games that I've, you know, popped in and tried playing and immediately I'm turned off because the jumping just doesn't feel right. So taking the time to get those right, uh, it, it does make a difference, I think, and it's worth it. Do you have a kind of a philosophy towards limitations? <sighs> Not really. I mean, what, mostly what I try to do, and, and a lot of what I've done, is, is taking old games and sort of bringing them to, over to the NES. So a lot of those limitations have already been thought of um, for things like Frogger and stuff like that. But um, I mostly just kind of think of something that I think would be fun, and I see if I can do it. Um, and there is a lot of laziness in what I do. So if something does take a lot of time, I'll usually think of the easiest way to do it. <laughs> um, 
but I don't know. Overall, I, I don't think I think of, of that too much. This coming from the man who has programmed an online game? Well, who would know that since the game is not out, Bo? Well, <laughs> you have clearly seen a limitation and just said, forget that. Yeah, because, I mean, there are things... I mean, we're friends with a lot of the people who know how to do a lot of this stuff. So when I think of something that I think would be fun to do, like making an NES game that has some online capabilities, I'll ask Brian uh, Parker and I'll just quickly say, hey, is something like this doable? And, you know, with his brain, he can think of, you know, the vast, nothing's a limitation to Brian because he can think of things to do, whatever he wants to do. So if he says, no, it's doable, and then he goes on this long tangent of explanation, I ignore all that and I say, okay, we'll figure that out when we get there. I'm going to do it and we'll figure it out. Um, So yeah, I, I just went along with it and programmed what I wanted to do. And uh, right now we're at that sort of roadblock where I do need to figure out how to do all those technical things of making it work online. Um, and I'm working with members uh, on making that a possibility. And I know he has a lot going on, but uh, hopefully at some point down the road, uh, that online game will be a reality. And that's a pretty solid philosophy towards limitations is that you make what you want to make. Yeah. And just figure it out along the way. If, if you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, uh, and that can, you know, figure this stuff out when they explain things to you. Eventually, when they explain it enough times and in dumb enough terms, you'll figure it out. Well, even Frogger, like, Frogger was never on the NES and you did a port of that. Right, and there's a reason it was never on the NES because, like you mentioned uh, earlier in the episode, one of the limitations is you can only have eight sprites per horizontal scan line. Um, and you have all of the cars zooming back and forth and the logs floating down the river, you can't really use sprites to do that stuff. So all of the graphics uh, other than the frog on Frogger are made of background tiles, and you have to be really creative with doing you know, the, the breaking of the background and having it scroll different directions all at the same time. And, and Brian definitely helped me along with that because that was way too complicated of a first game to try to tackle. <laughs> that is saying the least. <laughs> but we did it. Yes, you did. And it is one of the best. So 2009, right? 2009, yeah. And then I added some stuff, uh, some sound effects and some added uh, gameplay features uh, when I included it on the 4-in-1 that I released, I think, in 2015. Yeah, 2015. No, 2016, Was it 2016? Yeah, we're in 2017. All right. Time's flying, Bo. Time's flying. Only a year and a half ago. So what's going on right now, Bo? In the, in the community. Um, well, we're about to come up on fall, which is always a big time for either people trying to get games out by the end of the year or shows. But uh, Retro USB has recently released their wireless gamepad. Thank God. I've been waiting so long for that. Yeah, and so what that is, it's a, kind of like a boomerang-shaped controller, kind of like if the Max was done right. But it has, it's made with all new parts, and it sort of matches with the AVS. It's a wireless um, RF gamepad. Right. And it, it's it not Bluetooth. Plays. Yeah, it's not Bluetooth. There's no lag, so it's, it's instantaneous, just as if you were playing with a cord, and it is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, we got to play with it a little bit at uh, the Portland uh, Retro Gaming Expo last year, and I think the year before, actually. Um, and it... Uh, the. The range on it is insane. The battery life on it is insane. It's over 100 hours 
before you have to recharge it. It automatically turns itself off if you leave it inactive. Um, he, he really thought of everything, um, and it's just it looks great, it feels great, and it plays great. Has turbo buttons, correct? Yeah, turbo buttons. You can fully control uh, how fast each turbo button registers, uh, and they are independent, so you can have the A button be a different turbo speed than the B button. Um, yeah, it's it's great. So these have been sort of a while in the works uh, while he was waiting for the AVS to actually be shipped to the first batch. Uh, he went about designing these and going ahead and making these a reality. Even though these were on the table at the very beginning of the AVS project, they sort of got shelved until he sort of got got a little bored there. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm gonna take full uh, I'm gonna take full credit for the fact that these exist because I was the one that recommended that he make wireless controllers. I do not remember seeing that in the notes. Oh, it's there, man. It's there. Mm-hmm. We shall see, sir. <laughs> we shall see. Um, but yeah, so they're finally out. There's still, for those of you that are waiting on an AVS console itself, those are still kind of in progress. But the controllers, at least, are here finally and can be shipped. If you bought an LLE, the limited launch edition, You'll be getting your controller and a book about the game or the console. Which oh, I think for... you wrote that book, didn't you? I think I did, yes. <laughs> uh, which is why I'm not quite certain if you were the first to suggest that, but you must be right. Oh, I'm right, man. I'm right. Faulty um, memory Kevin's right. And we should say that you don't need an AVS to use these controllers. It works with the original NES. I will be using it with an original NES because I have CRTs, mostly. Well, you're a fool. So. Well, I finally got an HDTV. I just now my AVS doesn't work. So <laughs> <laughs> if it's not one thing. It's, it's always another. something with you, and that's my fault because I tried to fix it, uh, which was just stupid. Yep. So the controllers are available to purchase at retrousb.com. You just click on the AVS picture. It'll bring you to all the launch titles, and you can also buy the controller there. I think they're sixty bucks. Thank you. Yep, I'm getting there. 60 or 65? Well, let me double check. I thought they were 60. 65. See? Uh, I might not I remember know. the price of the controller, but I definitely know that I'm the one that recommended the creation of it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> what else is going on in the community? Uh, well, Derek from Gradual Games, uh, I think we've mentioned in the past that he has developed... Uh, a program called GGVM, which I believe stands for Gradual Games Virtual Machine. I could be completely wrong. Um, But it is basically a program that allows us developers to package our games uh, and actually release them on PC uh, and mobile devices. And so we actually have Derek on to talk a little bit about it. Uh, Is it Gradual Games Virtual Machine, Derek? Yep, that's right. Oh, nailed it. Uh, you're doing better than I am here. And is it two capital G's or is the VM capitalized? I cannot get that right every time I type it. Uh, I usually, I don't actually. That's a good question. <laughs> I guess <laughs> when I type it, I usually type it uh, either all lowercase or well, usually the the I, 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 G G V. I actually don't know. You know, I haven't really thought about the casing. <laughs> I'm gonna tell everybody. Two capital G's and then a V. Well, actually, let me just check my source code and see what I did. Oh, dang. He's going to contradict me with notes. Yeah, I I do it to three capital letters and one lowercase letter for some reason. Oh, just the M is lowercase? Yeah. Don't know why I did that. Dang. (laughs) 
It looks well, cool. A, That's why. It's official now. Um, so why did you... What is it, and why did you do it? Well, a bunch of... Or not a bunch, but a couple of people had... Uh, Put their NES homebrews on Steam, uh, or we're going to. Uh, I know uh, Brad Smith of Lizard was is going to, and the Haunted Halloween games are were put on Steam. And I was asking these folks how they did it, and as I understand it, um, both Lizard and the first Haunted Halloween game were actually totally rewritten uh, for the Target uh, platform PC. And I thought. Man, that would be a lot of work. I don't want to rewrite my game entirely for another system. And then, I, and then I thought, I wonder how. I, I, I mean, I could just use use an emulator, but then I thought there's going to be a bunch of um, uh, like licensing concerns. Like, who who am I going to have to ask permission? And am I going to be violating some open source law somewhere if I just use an emulator? Uh, Usually. And. In addition, uh, like, how, what if I wanted to release it on more platforms? And fortunately, um, a colleague of mine at work told me about this really nifty game programming library for Java called LibGDX, which uh, can package software for PC and Mac and Linux and Android and iOS. And I just had this crazy idea last summer. What if I wrote this incredibly minimalistic emulator? It doesn't even really have to fully emulate the system. It just gives me just enough to run my games and so I I didn't even know if it was gonna work I thought I'm just gonna try this and see see if I can get anything working and if it runs if it runs like shit I'll just give up but if it runs then I'll keep going with it so I spent some a while trying to get anomalous uh, running and after maybe a month or two I had it somewhat running and I thought wow this is working so I just kind of kept going with it and eventually had it running uh, both both of my games, Anomalous and Owly, are running pretty well in it, and wound up trying to get both games on Steam. And I was lucky enough to get Owly on Steam. Anomalous didn't make it. Um, of course, that's different now. I can just pay to get on there. But uh, uh, but it's working pretty well, and I thought maybe I should share this with the community. So I sort of tentatively put feelers out there to see if people were interested, and kind of panicked slightly because I hadn't really developed the system far enough to be really useful to other people. But... Uh, I guess the motivation just kept piling on and piling on, and the first uh, person in the community that asked to maybe work with me on DTVM was uh, Adam Welch of uh, Second Dimension uh, to put uh, Get Him Gary on GTVM. So that was the first sort of guinea pig outside of my own games, and it turned out not to be all that difficult to get it working. So I just kept going from there and having a lot of fun with it, and uh, now it's become like this open source thing and that's been useful to several homebrewers, and I I couldn't be happier. <laughs> Uh, how easy from a from a developer perspective? How easy is it to use? Um, well, apparently it's been getting it's been getting easier uh, because once I had made some bug fixes and improvements for Antoine Goheen of uh, Twin Dragons, it oh yes. it just worked out of the box for uh, Toma of uh, Eskimo Bob. Which those are both projects we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, quite a few of us these days are using. Kevin and I are actually using. Derek's wonderful program um, to get our games on the PC as well. Yep, PC version of Incident is working pretty well, uh, and we're working together right now to uh, tweak it a little bit to uh, get the mobile version working the way we want. Mo mobile. So are we talking touch screens? What are we talking? Yeah, touch screen. Uh, we're working, you know, with ways to sort of uh, manipulate the uh, 
you know, where you touch to do different commands and maybe hiding and showing, you know, the D-pad on different screens and just taking away the buttons that aren't used uh, just so it, it maybe doesn't feel like you're actually playing an NES game on an iPad. So how difficult would you say that is, Derek, to go from, you know, like a real controller to suddenly this modern experience? Um, well, I personally, I have very rarely found a uh, old-school platformer type of game work really, really well on, on mobile systems, um, just because the tactile feedback of actually feeling a physical d-pad or button under your thumb is so much more there's so much more information going between the controller and your brain than when you have your thumbs on a smooth surface and games usually solve this by either doing like uh, a little like vibration uh, effect or maybe a visual effect uh, when your thumb goes over the button other games don't do that at all and some games do it really well and some games don't do it so well and I, I don't know. Personally, I don't really like playing old-style games on mobile platforms, but uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not easy to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. So yeah, I know when Battle Kid came out uh, for iOS, and I I tried to play it. I mean, it's hard enough on the NES, as we talked about in episode one, but uh, playing it on an iPhone with touchscreen, it was it was borderline impossible. It's got to be better than a keyboard, though, right? Uh, I'm gonna say no. Oh. Yeah, I agree. Keyboard's <laughs> easier to use for playing games than than, than screens. Oh. <laughs> and unless, unless huh. the game's designed for a touchscreen, like uh, I mean, so many ca- casual games where you just have like a, like a, a finger swipe or just a tap. Yeah, like Flappy Bird. Yeah. <laughs> but or, I actually, think, uh, Angry Birds. That's what I'm. Thinking I think uh, the cons game incident's probably going to work pretty decently because the you're just moving in a direction. It's not quite as twitchy as as like a platformer, so it might work pretty well on mobile. Hope so. Yeah. I would think so. With, with puzzle games, RPGs, even probably action adventures would work a lot better than than a Twitch platformer or a uh, shoot 'em up. Yeah, I can I can barely play Anomalous on my phone <laughs> with GGVM. But you can play it. <laughs> yep. How's uh, How's Alia? Uh, it's okay. I mean, I I I just I'm just personally not a huge fan of mobile uh, gaming. Yeah, Alia, of course, is an action-adventure, sort of like Zelda, and then Nomalos is a platformer. Uh, you swing a sword, you're an awesome cat knight suit, which we will return to Derek's games in a future episode. But uh, we wanted to get him on for for this, because the GGM really, GGVM, really makes it possible for us to homebrewers to reach a whole new audience that would normally not even consider our games or consider, you know, paying for and thereby supporting and funding further development. Yeah, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that those people are going to <laughs> give us a try now that we have the, the, the option of putting our games on these other systems because uh, as we found out trying to, to do the old uh, Steam Greenlight process, uh, people can be very critical of the old games that don't have fantastic graphics. Well, you're talking that difference between, you know... A few hundred people within the homebrew community to maybe a few thousand tops versus Steam is what, like two million people? Yeah, I don't know the numbers, but I'm sure that's close. Ah, somebody said two million last week, so I'm just I'm going with that. It's probably more than that. Mm-hmm. I would I would assume because it's you know PC and people are hip to that. <laughs> Trolls. Trolls. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, man. Yeah. I read th- I read through some of the comments you guys got for your. Uh, for porting stuff to Steam and when they were doing the green light process which has recently ended and they were just stupid. 
I mean, they don't care. They don't care that you developed it for the NES. They all they're looking at is the graphics and the controls and just the game itself. And you get no sort of free pass. You know, they don't care. Well, and I've never been a fan of the free pass as it is, but um, you know, if you're develop, if you're again, if you're writing a sonnet. And somebody's saying that's not free verse. You're going, yeah, I know it's not free verse, moron. You're creating within certain confines for a reason. Yeah, and I definitely wanted to call a lot of those people morons, but I didn't. This is why my games never went to green light. <laughs> Thank God they changed I, that whole process. Thank goodness I didn't post them. Uh, that would not have gone well. <laughs> Anyways, um, what else we got for Derek? Uh, is there anything he wants to say about GGVM that we haven't touched on? Oh, well, it, it's it's been a really fun adventure building this thing, and uh, it, the funniest thing about it for me is uh, is that there there are hundreds and hundreds of, of, of truly accurate NES emulators out there, um, and so it's like amazing to me that nobody had made one that made it really convenient to sort of wrap up a homebrew game and, and make it available. Um, most of them are high, they have a ton of features and, and UIs for doing all kinds of things like tool-assisted speedruns and AI and scripting and so, so many things, but nobody had made one where you could just like, say, you know, create an EXE that contains your ROM, basically. So I'm, I'm amazed that nobody provided a solution like this, so uh, it's, it's really quite a niche thing, and um, I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to make something that has turned out to be useful to a few people. Um, but the instant somebody makes a real emulator do the same thing as GGVM, I'll probably be bowing out at that point. But I'm not seeing that happen, so GGVM's probably here to stay for a while. Yeah, and it probably isn't going to happen now that GGVM exists. Um, I know that uh, someone named Austin uh, made something like it back when uh, Battle Kid and uh, Zooming Secretary uh, were released with iOS. Yep. Um, but that guy kind of fell off the face of the earth. Yeah, so, I briefly uh, worked with him um, with his iOS emulator with, with Nomalous, um, but it, it just didn't work out. Yeah, so uh, we're very, very glad that you are uh, presenting this to us. Well, I remember about a year ago, year and a half, in chat, Kevin, you were asking uh, one of the fellows, Alder, I believe, what it would take to do basically what Derek was doing that we didn't know he was doing at the time. Right. I mean, because I, I wanted to, you know, I, I hate having my games be confined to people that own NESs, so I've always wanted to release something on iOS or Android just to, to give all of my friends who never get a chance to play my games an opportunity, so... I was putting feelers out, just seeing what it would take to make this happen. Um, so GGVM for me personally is a godsend. Yeah, and I guess I guess one more thing I want to say about GGVM is um, it, since it isn't a real emulator, if you if a game is sufficiently complex, it may become impossible for GGVM to support a game. So like, if a game has highly highly crazy like raster effects, you know, like with some I've seen some like demo scene type effects where things are, are making sort of like sinuous waves across the whole screen like every scan line is shifted by some amount and it's like all making wavy patterns you know really crazy stuff like that it would be really tough to make work in ggvm but as long as a game is you're thinking of um your standard type of nes game where you've got scrolling and sprites and maybe a status bar your basics will always be available in ggvm but uh but yeah like it's it, since it's not a real emulator going really far into the highly precisely timed type of effects that are uh, that are 
popular in some circles, uh, won't be possible in GDDM. Uh, what mappers and boards would you say are pretty easily going to be supported or are already supported? Well, right now it can do NROM, um, UNROM, and I, was, I, made, I, I just adapted a new mapper for... Oh, I, I, I guess it's called Mapper 30. It's sort of an extension of, uh, of UNROM for uh, Twin Dragons. Oh, yeah, okay. Enable CHR bank switching. Which it hadn't happened. Ah, and that'd be so nice. Just a few, so all the mappers I've adapted so far are just what has been used by the homebrew games that have used it so far. I haven't, uh, and won't be making an attempt to sort of exhaustively support all mappers the way a uh, a real emulator would. So as as games come up that use a mapper that's not supported yet, I'll see if it can be supported and and add support. <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. It's it's a homebrew. It's an effort by a homebrewer for other homebrewers. It's uh, completely free. As far as I know, correct? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 free, and so far I provide the source code completely for free. Anybody can download it, use it, modify it, do whatever the heck they want. Um, but I have been taking donations and small fees from folks to uh, to add some improvements or, or fix things that aren't working, et cetera, et cetera. And I will always support that, sir. Great. <laughs> uh, no, it's been, a, it's been a great effort that, that's helped a ton of us out. If you are currently making a game and you want to sort of see what it would be like to have it also available on PC for people um, please get in contact with Derek he is just an amazing guy and easy to work with and is doing cool things yep and I'll put the link in the uh, podcast episode description for you if you want to check out the source code for GGVM uh, to see if you could get it working for your project thank you uh, for coming on Derek you're welcome thanks guys yep have a good one yep so let's talk about the music of Starkeeper a little bit. Um, like I mentioned, uh, overall, the music is very, very good. The sound effects are fantastic. Um, one thing I don't like that he does with the music, um, and as you mentioned previously, the guy who programmed it was not the same guy who did the music, right? Uh, no, Ice and Dragon did the music, which okay. I have no clue who that is. Yep, probably some Chinese dude, and we love your work. Um, but yeah, one thing I don't like that he does, it seems like every song, even the title screen song, he puts this little tag, this little musical tag on the end to where it, the song is incapable of being looped without, you know, it doesn't loop seamlessly. There's like an end, and then it starts over, and it's really obvious. Um, and that actually kind of bothers me a little bit. But overall, the music's really good. The music that I want to play is uh, from the Second World. Um, I don't think he named any of the music. Do you? Did he write anything in the manual about any music names? I didn't see anything in there. Some people do, some people don't. But uh, right. this one, I don't see anything. Yep. So we'll play this little tune uh, from the Second World. Uh, it's actually in 6-8 time, if any of you people out there are musically inclined. Um, it's got a nice sort of... It's just It just sounds fun. Um, so let's take a listen for the music of World 2. Thank you. 
So that is the music from World 2. Uh, like I mentioned, it's in 6-8 time. It has a nice whimsical feel to it. Um, it's probably my favorite music from the game. Um, but yeah, it has that weird sort of tag at the end of the phrase. Um, so when it loops back around, it, it just isn't seamless. And I'm not really sure why he chose that, uh, that sort of style. Um, in, in all the music that I do, um, I like it just because it's the same song that's going to be looping. I like it to be a little bit uh, less obvious when that's happening, but uh, he chose to do it that way, uh, and it's good. I mean, the music's great, so I, I can't really complain. That's that's sort of a minimal complaint, um, but overall, it, it's really, really good. Did you like it too, Bo? Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorites, and it fits too with the theme of the world, which is, you know, the first world was solid ground, this one is more nautical, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it sort of it feels sort of like a pirate shanty a little bit. That's actually a good point. It does, um, especially once those those ships start coming at you with the cannonballs. And I don't think it's <sighs> shanty. Is it shanty? Shanty? No, it's sh- it's shanty. Oh, good. Okay, it's I not think. a shack. It's not a shack somewhere. It's a song. Right. Okay. Yeah, those uh, man, those skeleton pirates are definitely my favorite enemy. I love that how random his enemies are. They're just he really thought outside the box. <laughs> oh man, and then none of them do anything that's like super different. It's just the combination of things. You have one guy who does one thing. He just comes at you and drops stuff, you know, underneath himself or itself. Uh, the bird or duck or I thought it was a pterodactyl but it could know, be it's probably a duck <laughs> well, i mean it could be a pterodactyl he has freaking gargoyles later in the game it's, that is just, true he's all over the place well and then you have like the tornadoes that just come down you have the uh little cupid things that shoot horizontally and then you have that stupid rabbit in world one oh, two, yeah who you know little bounce little bounce little bounce and then giant bounce that you're actually so like, high ducking under it half the time and then the thing takes like 10 shots to kill it it's killer yeah and i forgot to mention one thing i don't like i mean all all i want to do is heat praise on this game because it is really really good um but when you you can stand on the clouds in the game um and when you're flying you know with your jetpack and you land on a cloud it it seems like the gravity it, it's a little wonky, in my opinion. The controls feel a little wonky when you when you stand on the cloud. Like the inertia is wrong. Oh, well, there is a move you can do. Uh, if I don't know if you're moving real quick, but if you kind of go the opposite direction and hit, I think it's A. You actually kind of like lunge the opposite direction as opposed to just gently move. It throws me every time. Okay. I don't know if that's what you're what you're thinking, but uh, I know that that movement throws me. Yeah, and I'll probably just need to give it more time. I mean, I I, I put some pretty good time into the game because it is a lot of fun, and we do we didn't I have don't think we've really talked about if we would recommend this game or not, but but yes, definitely. I mean, it's great. 
Oh yeah, and that's another thing about the game is you never feel like it's like the next level is impossible. It's like if with just a little more practice, if I just made like that jump or killed that enemy instead of this other one first, uh, that that I could get to the next level. So it's not it's not a hopeless feeling with this one. You're you're constantly the moves, the progression is very nice. Yeah, unlike some of the other games that we've reviewed in the past, this one does not leave you feeling hopeless at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to... I don't even think that you could sit down and memorize patterns in this game. I mean, you might be able to, um, but it seems like uh, it the, the sort of gameplay is going to be different every time. Yeah, I've actually tried to analyze that with the falling tornadoes, because I was thinking that they fell on certain screens, but... I can't even get them to fall on the same screens at the same time. So I'm thinking that... So it is random some, in some way? Yeah, there's some randomization thrown in there. Uh, nice. Or just way too complex of logic for me. So fun factor, you would say, is is a yes? Oh, yeah. I would put this as... Uh, in terms of polish and professionalism, it's like a 10 out of 10. And I don't like to give numbers to things, but it, that's basically my way of saying it's perfect in terms of polish. And then in terms of fun and in terms of something that I want to have around to play, especially in comparison with the rest of the NES library, you know, 90 to 95%, like it's up there. And I don't like arcade games, so that's saying something, but uh, it's actually, it's fun. Yeah, I'd, I'd easily put it at the top 40, uh, maybe even the top 30 of of best NES games overall. I mean, it, it is super polished. Um, when you sit down, you, you don't think, oh, some guy made this in his basement. It, it actually feels like someone knew what they were doing when they made this game. The graphics are great. The music's great. The controls are great. I mean, there, there's nothing that we can say, you know, other than it's, it's really, really fun. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a bit too difficult. That's my only complaint, but, um, but no. I think that is definitely in line with a lot of the NES games. I mean, a lot of them are just really, really difficult. Well, for an arcade-styled game that doesn't want to uh, just continuously loop, like it is pretty awesome that you can actually build up to harder and higher levels. Uh, mm -hmm. So it kind of combines the old with the new, you know, level progression with arcade-style gameplay. If you wanted to find a copy, where would you find one? Well, as someone who does not own this game, I honestly don't know, so I'm going to need you to tell me. Well, if you go on eBay right now, there is a case for sale, uh, the case <laughs> that it came in. And no game. It's still 150 bucks. I don't know wow. who that they're going to get that for, but... Um, the the game... case is 150 bucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of in small print, no game included. Wow. But yes. 150 bucks for the case. It, it was on there before for 250 I oh, think. Oh, if uh, someone buys normally... that... I'm going to be so sad for them. Oh, I thought you were going to buy it. When you said you had a copy on the way, I was like, oh, no, Kevin, please no. <laughs> um, thankfully, Corey was kind enough to let you borrow his. Yes, thank you, Corey. But yeah, the game was released, like I said, back in 2014. And um, it was supposed to come out in April, or no, it was supposed to come out in May, and it did not come out until September. And on the way... It kind of went through some some growing pains. There were there were PCB delays. There were he actually had uh, new cart shells made for this. There were delays with that. It's a, it's a big process. I've kind of helped go through that myself. Not fun. And besides all those delays, he went to release it. He said he told uh, the, posted on the Nintendo Age forums that it was going to come out at 
think, 11 p.m. or 10 p.m. Chicago time, which is 11 p.m. Nintendo Age time slash East Coast, because that's where many of us are. And he had done two two or three, I think it was just two copies before that. Um, he threw them up, said, anybody want this? And they said, yes, we'll take it right away. <laughs> and he just did that to sort of verify, like, yes, I can ship out of China and nothing is going to sort of get in the way of that. People got their games. They loved it. They kind of ranted and raved about how awesome it was, these two people. So he was going to release 100 limited editions. These came with box. Uh, it was sort of a v- old VCR box with some cool pink foam on the inside, a manual, the new cart, the new PCB with a custom mapper which is why you can't find the ROM of this online, because it has not been emulated. It's the only game that's used it. And he went to release, he was going to release these hundred copies. So we all lined up. And I was there when it was released. I think it was September 11th. And stayed up, which at the time I was going to bed at, I think, 10. So I stayed up an extra hour. And, which is saying something for me when you wake up at 4 a.m. And <laughs> we're sitting there. We're all lined up, and he says, you know, 100 copies, eBay, 11 p.m., go! And we're all sitting there hitting F5, just to no end. And if you look at the thread where he posted all this information, it goes from, like, a couple hundred posts to, like, 800 within an hour or two. Because there were a lot of us lined up to buy this game, and it failed miserably. He could not get eBay to work. He's trying to ship from China. They figured, uh, they flagged him as fraudulent, uh, (laughs) too many of the same item, and he's sitting there. He doesn't speak English. Yeah, I don't think that you mentioned um, when you said that he posted on Nintendo Age, it wasn't actually him, was it? No, it was him, but he had to pay a translation company. That's funny. And so he's dealing with all these customer, well, I mean, customer service, supporter service uh, <laughs> issues as there's, you know, 50 people lined up at 11 p.m. to buy this thing the second it goes live. Because we'd seen so many games at that time sell out within a few hours. Right. Uh, when, Battle, when Battle Kid went live, it sold out within, I think it was like three or four hours, maybe eight hours. The first hundred copies were gone, spoken for, and done. You could not get another copy for another week or two. And with this one, he said, you know, there's only going to be a hundred limited editions. So we all wanted it, and it was priced at the very reasonable $49 with shipping. And that was shipped to your door from China. And so he's having all sorts of these issues. And if you look at the thread, there's hundreds of posts just like, what is going on? Why are we all here? I want to go to bed. Uh, Can we help this guy out? Why don't you just sell it here? Just sell it here. And at some point, somebody just started to say, I got number three. I got number one. I got number two. I got number 25. And they just started (laughs) calling numbers. He hadn't even said he was going to sell it on Nintendo Age. That's Nintendo Age for you. Well, and then somebody was like, no, we're redoing the list. And so everybody just started calling new numbers. <laughs> and then a third time, I, it was either the third or fourth time, he finally chimed in and was like, if you want a copy, I'll honor that. And so somebody started another, yet another list. And by the next morning, because I think I stayed up till about 3 a.m., I was just exhausted, had to work the next day and everything. And by 3 a.m., like 75 of the 100 copies had been sold. And within, you know, 24 hours, all 100 were spoken for and there was a waiting list. Because the game looked that awesome. The reception from day one when he posted a video was just like, this is made by one guy? Like, how? Well, two guys Mm -hmm. with a musician. But uh, the... People were just very excited, and so it was really interesting to see. And that left the 100 copies, and then he did the two 
first ones that he sent off to test shipping, and then there were another 16 or so copies uh, that were either sent as gifts, or he did sort of a regular edition, which is much more rare than the limited edition, and that was it. There it's was funny only... the way that the regular edition is rarer than the limited edition. <laughs> it would not be the first game uh, for those of us that collect variants, but um, yeah, that's that's... He is not going to do any more. Well, at least he said he wasn't going to, and this was a couple years ago. Like, the game is sold out. If you want a copy, you got to find somebody who's willing to part with it, which is sort of a... That's tough. Kind of a, it's kind of, well, it's a rare occurrence in a, in a consumer society where you can buy anything, if you have enough money, to not even be able to find a copy of a game, regardless of how much money you have. Yeah, I'm thinking about just keeping Corey's copy and never sending it back. Well, you could do that. Um, <laughs> so copies do tend to turn up from time to time on eBay uh, or Nintendo Age. What's it worth these days? These days... Um, Any idea? Probably around... It's about 200 Dang. Considering it was only 50 bucks uh, shipped uh, from day one. And it was one of those ones that we knew was going to probably increase in value at the time. Yeah. Uh, just because it can't really be emulated so if you want to play it you have to own it and that whole situation as a whole is kind of weird that you'd only be able to buy it from a reseller and not even from the original guy yeah it's a shame i mean he deserves to make some money off of this because the game is that good well he made what he wanted and hopefully he makes some more things and it's i'm sure he's had plenty of people offering to help him out i know i i at least sent him one message but it uh it's an amazing game Mm-hmm. And not just as a homebrew, but within the con or within the scope of the licensed library as a whole. Yeah. What are you up to these days, Bo? Oh, jeez, man. What aren't I up to these days? <laughs> uh, I've, like I mentioned earlier, I've been working on an RPG, uh, which is my dream project, the game I've wanted to make pretty much my entire life. And I recently had to put that aside and return to Spookatron, which is the game I put on Kickstarter last uh, April, and I need to finish that up, get that out by October in time for Halloween, and I am also working on a book for Brian over at Retro USB. He commissioned. Oh, that's right, you are working yeah. on a book. That is actually my day job right now is <laughs> writing this book about the history of the homebrew community. And I've been interviewing people. I've been going through the sources. This podcast is sort of a popular reflection of what I've been doing for that uh, project. A lot of the research that I've that you know would be lost in footnotes is coming out through this this dialogue with with Kevin here. And then there will of course be a lot more uh, details, facts, dates. Uh, story and sort of a cohesive narrative of 20 years of the homebrew community over 20 years yeah because it's pretty easy to go back and, and read up of the last you know eight years or so but before that there's not a whole lot of information out there no no i'm starting in like the uh mid to late 90s with with the uh, sort of the birth of console emulation and some of the test programs they started writing for that and then how that grew into kind of what we have today uh you know it really didn't explode till i think 2013 is where i sort of pegged that as but there was you know 15 years of stuff before that uh, that that is 
going to be lost if we don't document it and sort of tell that story. Get to hear about the pioneers of NES homebrew. Well, even finding them is hard. So if you uh, if you happen to be listening to this, I will either probably be contacting you or uh, if I don't, please contact me uh, just because it's an exhaustive project. There's a lot of individuals involved, but it's super exciting. Uh, it's just fascinating what we've been able to do with this system that was supposed to have died off in, you know, 94. Yeah, I'm really happy that Brian uh, commissioned you to do this book because I think you are the best person to do it because you are a little bit on the inside and you have the passion and desire to really dig deep and uh, ask the questions that need to be asked that a lot of us uh, other people wouldn't have even think to ask so i'm excited to uh definitely read the end the end product well that's one of the joys of having a degree that doesn't get you a job <laughs> hey i'm with you there uh <laughs> but uh that leads me to what i'm doing these days uh i have like you just said a degree that uh isn't translating into a job but i was lucky enough to get a new job recently uh working for the government here uh so that is been sucking a lot of my free time away um, in the previous couple of years, I've had a lot of time to devote to, you know, making these NES games. Uh, but now that I have an eight to five sort of full-time job, um, I don't have the free time I was. Uh, so that is where my focus is, uh, doing an old boring job, but I love it. Yeah, we'll see. I, you work in spurts. You, you take a few months off after you finish a project and then you just buckle down and knock another one out. Yeah, we'll nine, see. Nine games now? Ten games? Nine. I've released nine games, yeah. If I if I release uh, Unicorn, the online RPG that we've sp- spoken about previously, that'll be number ten. Uh, hey, Memblers, if you're listening, let's do that. Um, and then Larry 2, uh, which I have started on, um, but it's it's tough without someone doing the graphics for me. Your uh, graphics are great. If you want to see Kevin's <sighs> graphics, check out his Instagram. There is actually like a video of some stuff, which I don't care if you really want that promoted. I'm going to promote it for uh, you. Yeah, I mean, they're they're decent. I wouldn't say they're great, they're but good. it's it's tough. It's it's tough for me. I I know for a lot of people, it's sort of effortless. Uh, and maybe it's not, maybe it just seems like they're effortless to some people, but to me, it takes a lot of work to get anything to look halfway decent. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'd yeah, love to finish, good. I'd love to finish Larry too. Uh, and then isolation, which I've been working on for a couple of years. Uh, I'm working with an artist named MT, um, who does a lot of the best, uh, NES artwork that I've ever seen. So I'm very thankful to have him on this project. Um, he has some other things going on. Um, but he sends me some stuff when he can, um, and that will one day see the light of day. And that's another point-and-click game. Uh, that's sort of where my interest is, I think, point-and-click. I don't think there's a lot of that represented on the NES uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, it's not easy to move a cursor around with a D-pad. But I, I love that style of game, and I think I've sort of found my niche there. So Larry 2 isolation and unicorn those are the three projects that may or may not see the light of day um but i hope so perfect uh so we're gonna close out this episode with an ep- uh with a song that memblers did um and you know joe a little bit better than i do where did you come across this track uh so joe and i have worked together on a few things uh he of course designed the circuit boards that i use and kevin uses as well the gt round boards and then he's also 
helped me with some music and some coding things. Uh, he's actually taught a lot of people how to code throughout the community over the years. Uh, if you want to talk about anybody that's been around from the beginning, uh, Memlers is really it. You know, as a teenager back in the mid to late 90s. But um, this song was composed way back when he when i needed music for zero to x which was programmed by a different fellow and i did some additions to it and needed some music for it he gave me his chipography which is a, you know his collected chiptune uh album i think it was like 180 something songs wow and they they went from 98 to 2003 so the music on that game is some of like the earliest stuff done on the community, and I, as I mentioned before, he you know he was winning competitions with this music. It was that good, and so he basically let me pillage his old soundtrack. You would hear, you'd listen to like, or I, I would listen to you know like ten songs, and you could you could tell that they were made for a game because they were all like thematically related. Like they would build, like Castlevania would build, you know, from one level to another. They felt mm-hmm. like a collection, and so this song. I pulled from uh, you know the midst of another selection and it, it really doesn't fit on the zero to X soundtrack because it does not loop it has like an intro section and then it ends um, and you actually have to hit the select button to go to the next song it doesn't fit but it was so good I could not say no and so here it is unnamed tracked uh, like 152 uh, quickly I want to say um... We appreciate you guys tuning in. Definitely, uh, if you have any questions that you want to write in, nesassemblyline at gmail.com. We will answer them on the air in a future episode. Uh, if you can rate us on iTunes, that would be fantastic. That helps us in the search metrics. Uh, and we will now present to you Joe's untitled track. So we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks.